announcements for the moment. Um, so let's get on into Scripture itself, which is why we're here. We really made a lot of progress in Romans last week. I think I covered about six verses. <laughs> it took nearly an hour and a half to do it, but hopefully uh, expounding this is helpful. So let's pick it up in Romans. We're down to uh, chapter 3 and verse 28. Uh, I'm taking quite a bit of time to go through this and explain, uh, as I said before, uh, who Paul was writing to, because uh, once he started jumping on the Jews, especially in chapter 3, he hasn't let up yet. Uh, they were still in the same attitude and approach that they were when Christ upbraided them so severely and called them lots of names and so on. And that had not changed. Ultimately, the word was self-righteousness. The Jews held to their own righteousness, even as Satan did. That's where it originally came from. Satan decided he was more righteous than God. He could do a better job running the universe than God. And therefore, he should uh, take the third of the angels under his command and attack God's throne and rule the universe himself. Well, the Jews had pretty much the same attitude in terms of religion. Theirs was the only religion. Uh, Abraham was their father, and Moses was, and nobody else's. Uh, they basically left out the other tribes of Israel themselves uh, and looked to themselves and ultimately the religion of Judaism as it is morphed into what we see around us today. So, he keeps making this comparison between the Gentiles who were coming into the church and the Jews who were coming into the church and showing that spiritually everybody is the same. It didn't make any difference what your bloodlines were or, you know, whether it was Mohammed or Genghis Khan, well, they hadn't been born yet, Genghis Khan or whoever uh, was your progenitor and where you came from. Uh, it only matters that you serve God and His Son. And it doesn't matter what human being you are, anybody is open to do that, and no one has an advantage except He did say at the beginning of this chapter that the Jews did have a big advantage. Not that they were related to Abraham and Moses. That wasn't their advantage. Their advantage was they had had the Old Testament, the Word of God, and the commandments. And he jumps on them, if you'll see here, far more than he ever does the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not as responsible. To whom much is given, much is required. And the Jews had been given the law of God and all the Old Testament, prophets and everything, and they weren't following it. So when you have something and don't follow it, you're a lot worse off than somebody who doesn't have it and doesn't follow it. <laughs> you know, that, that's quite simple. And that's what he's trying to get across here, because the Jews were sitting there probably in all their self-righteousness from the past, and he's trying to get them over that. And I think God is doing the same thing with the church today. We had become pretty self-righteous. We're the only work of God on earth. Worldwide church is the only way that only place that God is truly working. And generally speaking, I think that that was a correct premise. It is through uh, worldwide church of God that God did the calling of the ones who have the truth. And very, very few have come up with much truth apart from that. Now, there are people here and there around the world that have this doctrine or that doctrine pretty much correct, but they don't have the body of doctrine all put together that God gave Herbert Armstrong. They just don't have it anywhere. I defy you to show me somebody that does. They're not out there. Some of them have three or four doctrines right. I won't say they don't have only one, but uh, they don't have the understanding that God gave. So, what did we do? Same thing the Jews did. We got self-righteous about it and thought we were special. Uh, and God is having to humble us all and have us destroyed as a church 
before the eyes of God and man and in our own eyes. Because it isn't the lesson to the world that he's teaching. It isn't a lesson to himself that he's teaching. The lesson he's teaching is to you and me. Because we're the ones he's working with and we're the ones that need to get the message. The world doesn't yet. He hasn't even called the world yet. So, whether they get it or not, really is neither here nor there. Everything that's happened is essentially for you and me. Now, that sounds bad and harsh in one way, and yet on the other hand, God says He chastens every son whom He loves. So if we're going through all of this, that means God loves us. So smile and be happy in your trials, troubles, and tribulations. Because he, Paul even says later that we should take the right kind of joy in all that we go through that helps us become what we ought to be. Uh, that's the whole point of chastening as well as other kinds of trials, troubles, and things that happen to us. And time and chance does not happen to us. Time and chance... Solomon said, happens to everyone, but he was speaking in Ecclesiastes to an unconverted audience. And in this world, time and chance does happen to everyone. But let's understand that when we come under the blood of Christ and we are baptized, is when he begins counting our hair, he begins pondering our hearts, he begins to be absolutely intimately involved in our lives. And therefore, whatever happens to us, he allows or passes on because he sees that we might need a lesson here, we might need an attitude adjustment at the moment, uh, so on and so forth. Now, when I bumped my knee uh, the other day, and scraped it pretty good. I don't think I was being particularly chastened of God at that moment. Uh, the step broke. But you know what it made me do? It made me immediately think, the feast is coming, we had better pray for God's protection and help. So I lost a few square inches of hide, big deal. But it spurred a thought that I think is an important thought. So I don't look upon it now as negatively as I did when I was checking to see how much it was bleeding. Uh, but it may have helped. It may have helped you to hear that three people had falls. Two of them got hurt pretty badly. I didn't, thankfully, but uh, others did. And can we all learn from it? Can we all say, we need to be close to God... And maybe because we haven't been as close to God as we should, God isn't taking quite as good a care of us as He would if we were. Because He isn't, is He? I don't think God is taking, in some respects, as good a care of us as He was in the 50s and 60s. Back then, we saw more healings, we saw more growth, we saw more... Uh, of a spiritual attitude than came to be later in the church. So when God drove it apart, He allowed more bad things to happen to us than had been happening previously. I think I can safely say that. And the church all came apart. So He allows certain things to happen... But depending on our mood and attitude, and therefore his attitude toward us, more bad happens when we're not in his good graces than does when we're in his, we are in his good graces. So he's allowing more to happen now, to destroy, to discourage, to frustrate, to let Satan uh, have his will and way more than he would, and will soon, when he says, he will forgive and turn his face to us, and then we'll receive multitudinous blessings, and he will be looking over us with a smiling face, and he won't allow or pass on as much evil to occur to us as is currently happening.
things will get better. But they have gotten worse and worse until they get better. And we need to grasp and understand that so that it helps spur us on to having right attitudes and right relationship with God. That's why I always paddled my children. Because I wanted them to understand that the attitude they're in was not a good attitude. And I would not let up until they became sweet and cooperative and loving and kind and quit fighting and sulking and pouting and all that. Whatever means of punishment was being used, it's not done just to keep the kid from bugging you. It's done to teach the kid what his attitude ought to be. And some parents only discipline until they get compliance. The kid quits doing whatever he was doing. And that's enough for a lot of parents. Compliance is not enough. Were we not in compliance, basically, with God's laws in Worldwide Church of God? Yes, essentially we were. Feasts, holy days, you know, you name it, the basic doctrines. We were in compliance, but our attitudes weren't right. So God said, hey, compliance doesn't get it. You need an attitude adjustment. And we've been getting one for about 30 years now. <laughs> and hopefully, we'll not only comply, but hopefully we'll be cheerful about it and turn to God in love and thanksgiving and gratitude and have the kind of attitude that He wants us to have. And when we do that, seek Him with all our heart, He will turn and bless in ways that we have never known before. So, that's all Paul is trying to do here, is get people to recognize that on their own, as Jews, they weren't righteous. And they never even accepted Christ who is the only way your sins can be justified is through His blood. Now these were budding Christians becoming spiritual, not just physical Jews. But they still needed their attitudes adjusted. And the Gentiles needed their attitudes adjusted because they had an extreme racism problem themselves, having been persecuted, put down, and called dogs by these same Jews. And here they are in the same room. <laughs> Uh, this, 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 is, this is a mix that could cause all kinds of problems. And that's why Paul's dealing with it in the way that he is. So let's pick it up in verse 28. Uh, well, he says, where is boasting in verse 27? It is exclu excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Uh, you can talk about all your good works and all you've done, as the Jews did, and wrote them on the broad white phylacteries on the ends of their sleeves. They wrote their good deeds for people to read. They went that far with it. And uh, he says, you can't boast in that. You're justified by faith, not by your good works. Because all those good works can't remove the penalty of one sin. You're going to die for that. So, why are you boasting? He says, that's excluded. Uh, no, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, Protestants will grab that last phrase and say, you don't have to follow the law. But that's not what he's saying. He goes on to explain. Now, sometimes he put, thing, he put things in a way that Peter and the other fishermen had trouble understanding, and so did the Protestants. I mean, isn't it quite simple, really? What did Jesus, they'll say, himself say? Matthew nineteen seventeen. Pretty simple. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Oh. So, any argument you want to make in Romans and Galatians or anything else Paul wrote falls face down in front of that one verse. 
If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. You cannot enter into life unless you keep the commandments, is what is being said there. So you can't take this phrase and say the law is done away. You're justified by faith without the deeds of the law. What he's trying to explain in the context is keeping the law will not save you because breaking it once destroys you. It is faith in the blood of Christ that the penalty of breaking that law can be removed and your sin of the past can be justified in His blood. So you can't save yourself by works, having already done some bad ones. It takes something other than that to save you. That's all he's saying. Is he the God of the Jews only? You sitting in the audience, he says. Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Every human being came from Adam and Eve and through eight people at Noah's time. And God created all of them. He set the birth process in order, and He carefully preserved the races through the flood. Now, if God was that racist, and He only was going to work through Shem and then through Abraham, why didn't He just go ahead and let the others drown and be done with it? If they weren't going to be of any use and be dogs throughout man's history and not be in the kingdom of God because they were not Jews. No, he preserved the races because he loved them all. He loved the whole world is the reason he sent Christ. The whole world. Not just the world of the Judai. <laughs> so he's trying to make this point. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. So he says it doesn't matter whether you're a circumcised Israelite or Jew, or whether you are a, an uncircumcised Gentile, it is through faith that you can be saved from your sins and receive eternal life. Faith in what? Well, he'll explain. Faith in Christ and the blood that justifies us. So it's not that the law is done away with, but the law, if you break it once, will kill you. So the law is unto death. You transgress the law, you die. From Adam and Eve on. So therefore, you need a way to get away from that penalty, and Christ is the only answer. He's the only one whose blood was worth more than your blood. And he could die for your sin, so you don't have to die for your sin. So he goes on then, and he answers the question that might be raised by a Protestant at the end of verse 28. You're justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, what does he say? Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. They don't read that one. They don't read it. I was having a discussion with one of my sons not too long ago. Well, it's been a few years now on that particular discussion. But he was saying we have to get as far from that evil, nasty law as we can. He grew up in the church. <laughs> well, did he read this? No. We established the law. Is doing away with the law the same as establishing it? I don't think so. If you're establishing it, that means you're setting it up, you're preserving it, you're keeping it, you're establishing it for everyone to follow. That's what establish means. You can't be saved by the law. You can be saved... By having your sins forgiven in the blood of Christ and faith that that will transpire. That's how. So he's talking to a Gentile audience who had not known Christ and to a Jewish audience who had rejected Christ. That's the whole point. You've got to go through him or else. 
So then he goes on to explain further in chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh has found? He says, all right, you Jews go back to Abraham, okay? And he's your knight in shining armor that you all look to, Abraham and Moses. So he says, let's discuss Abraham. Let's see if the deeds of the law or the works of the law are what made your father Abraham justified and righteous. So he's facing the question straight on. You'll holler about Abraham and Moses, all right? Let's get there. Let's talk about it. What has been found out? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. He says all the good works that Abraham did, he might pat himself on the back for and say, what a good boy am I, have done all these wonderful things for people. But he says he can't rejoice before God in those works. Why? Can't he go before God and say, I did all these wonderful things and I helped people and aren't I justified by that? Aren't I righteous? Well, we're going to find out God would say no. That didn't make you righteous. Let's see that. For what says the Scripture? This is not Paul's reasoning. This is the Scripture. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Not his good works, he said, just above this. But it was his faith in God that God counted as righteousness. So it wasn't good deeds and good works that made him righteous. It was faith in God. Now, to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you're out here working for somebody, uh, picking their cotton or whatever you might be doing, then you are building up a debt that that landowner must pay. Because he's agreed to pay you so much an hour or so much a sack for cotton. And therefore, a debt is being created that at the end of the day or end of the week, that landowner will pay because of the service you've performed. Okay? So works, or working, creates a debt that is paid. He gets his cotton, you get his money. It's a trade. Now, grace doesn't work that way. Righteousness doesn't work that way. It's not that we do all these good works and then God owes us eternal life. You can't build up a debt like that with God like you can a, a cotton farmer. Because no matter how many good works you do, you will fail sometimes and you will sin sometimes. And for that, you have to die. So you can't go to God and say, well, I may have done this, this, and this, but I did this, this, and this. And I, I did more good than I did evil. So you've got to reward me. And God says, no. That's not the way it works. That's the way the Jews thought. If I do all these good works and put them here for everybody to see, then God can see them and read them too, and He'll know that I have to be a chosen one. No, that doesn't happen. It's not grace. What is grace? Basically, unmerited pardon. It is the good grace of God that you do not deserve. So, having sinned even once, we are not in the good grace of God because that sin cannot be pardoned. Every sin you sin as a human being is an unpardonable sin because the penalty is inexorable. The penalty of sin is death. Therefore, no matter how much good works you do, you cannot remove that penalty. You're going to die. Now, you've got to find some way to get the penalty removed so you can live.
Verse 5, But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. He says, let's say you never did a good work. You never helped a little old lady across the street and you never fed an orphan. You didn't have any works. But you had belief and faith in God and that is counted for righteousness. You simply believed God. Now that's what he's going to say about Abraham. Abraham believed God. He's going to use an example. Because that is how our righteousness is established. What do you mean, believe God? God gave us the law. He said, if you break it, you're going to die. Both physically and ultimately eternally. But I'm sending my son, symbolically crucified before the foundation of the earth. And he's going to live a perfect life. And his life is worth more than yours. And he's going to die so that you can be forgiven and saved from your own penalty, death. So it is that belief and that faith that that, that, that process is going to save you. I believe I'm going to be resurrected and given eternal life. That's what I'm here for, is to believe that. Now, can I fail and become a castaway? I'm not once saved, always saved. That's another thing that Paul made very clear. After he had preached to others, he could still become a castaway. So if you continue in obeying and believing and trusting God, then He will save you through pardon that you do not deserve. That's what grace is. So you can't say to God at the judgment, you owe me. <laughs> I did all this good. You owe me. Now, no, I don't owe you. It is a gift given to you because my son died for you. So, verse 6, Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. David understood God pretty well, and he said, you can be justified without works. Is that fairly clear there? Saying, here's what David said, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man to whom the eternal will not impute sin. Now, does that mean that you won't ever sin? No. It's that you, if you are under the mercy and forgiveness through the blood of Christ, He does not chalk that sin up to your account. But He's willing to forgive you through Christ's sacrifice. I should hope that we would come to that point where God, even though we make mistakes through the weakness of the flesh, through ignorance, through stupidity, through carelessness, whatever, that God would say, I know you are doing what you ought to be doing. You're following my laws. You mean well. Your attitude is right. All right, you screwed up but I'm not going to write that on your account and kill you for it. I'm going to put it under the blood of my son. Do you know how many sins you commit without even knowing it? A lot more than we might think we do. We can sin in attitude. We can sin in word. We can infer things. We can imply things. There are sins of commission, sins of omission. I mean, there are things that you're told to do. There are things that you omit to do. And I don't make it through a day without sinning in some form or fashion. I, I just don't. But I hope God sees the direction of my life well enough that whatever thoughts, whatever attitudes I might have, 
He forgives them and does not impute them to me, even though I may not even recognize I sinned. That's what he means. Now, if you deliberately sin, you'd better be on your knees asking forgiveness and mercy and so on, because you sinned full well knowing you were sin, sinning, and you did it anyway, which is idolatry. You put yourself ahead of God in His way. And idolatry is the biggest sin, putting anything ahead of God. So, yes, we need to daily be repenting of things that we know we thought or did or said wrong. But God is big enough to cover a lot of things under the blood of Christ. If we have found favor in His sight, we believe Him, we trust Him, we trust in the blood of His Son and the life of His Son to be resurrected. So, blessed is the man to whom the Eternal will not impute sin. Comes this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also, Jew and Gentile? Does it apply to both? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? So he's going to explain, you who look back to Abraham think you have a great advantage here and you're righteous because you follow Abraham, maybe even worshipped Abraham, carried it too far. How was righteousness reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Abraham had found grace with God before he was ever circumcised. Before there was ever a Jew on earth. Abraham wasn't a Jew. I, I suppose there are probably Jews who would argue that. But he wasn't a Jew. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Jacob's one of Jacob's sons was the first Jew. Judah. And the other sons were the first of the other tribes of Israel. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not Jews. Abraham was, long before he was circumcised, he had been imputed righteousness from God. He wasn't circumcised until Isaac was already almost grown or grown. And then his wife got real unhappy with him when he, uncircum when he circumcised Isaac and the other men in his company. So he says, circumcision, you know, righteousness came before circumcision. That's the point of this verse. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. So he says, he was accounted righteous by God before he was circumcised, and then God instituted the practice of circumcision as a seal to show who were the descendants of Abraham. And even some of the Arabs, I believe, circumcised to this day because they came through Abraham. Not through Sarah, but through Hagar. They even circumcised the women, but that's a perversion way beyond anything in the Scripture. So he received circumcision as a sign or a seal. Even in the book of Revelation, it talks about how in the end time, God says, don't hurt anybody until I seal my followers in their forehead. Of course, Satan is also going to seal his followers in the forehead and in the hand. He mimics God. He replicates or... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, imitates, anyway, uh, the things that God does. So, a seal is what circumcision meant. Uh, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had yet being uncircumcised. It wasn't the circumcision that was important. It was the righteousness 
through faith. The circumcision was only a sign that that had been accomplished, is all it was. And Paul at other places, as we read, I think, last week or the week before, uh, says that circumcision is nothing because now the Holy Spirit in your heart is circumcision of the heart. So physical circumcision is not the seal anymore. The seal is God's Spirit in your heart and mind. That's the sign now. The other physical sign went away with the Old Covenant. We're under the new now, circumcision is of the heart. So, he got this seal that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. So he says, even people who aren't circumcised can believe in the righteousness and faith of Abraham and themselves be saved without circumcision. That righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he was talking to these Gentiles in that audience at Rome and said, some of you are sitting here uncircumcised. And he says it doesn't mean anything. The righteousness of faith that Abraham showed is what you're after also. So you that are sitting here in the audience with your foreskin gone aren't any better off than the ones sitting here who still have it. It's all the same. Righteousness and faith is what justified Abraham, not circumcision. I think that's pretty clear here, isn't it? He, he says it enough. Anyway, verse 12, And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. The whole point being, righteousness was imputed through belief in God. And belief in God, then, is going to cause you to do what God wants done. If you become Twitter-pated with someone that you wind up marrying. Isn't your whole attitude and approach as you approach the wedding that you want to please, you want to serve, you want to do all you can to make that potential mate happy? That's your attitude. Anything I can do. I'll climb the highest mountain, swim the widest sea, on and on it goes in songs. I'll swim the Mississippi, whatever. So, you want to do everything you can to be in good favor, in good grace, in the light of that other person's eye. Now, that may change a year or two or five down the road, but that's the way you approached it. And it should remain that way. And that's what Abraham was trying to do with God. He was trying to believe everything that God told him. And not only try, but he actually did believe everything God told him. We'll see an example of that here in a moment. Verse 13, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You know what? The law hadn't even been given yet. Moses hadn't been born. Sinai had not occurred. There was no Passover. There was no Feast of Tabernacles. When Abraham believed God, it was all about Abraham's attitude. So it wasn't through the law. Now we know from Scripture that the law of God was there. Otherwise, uh, Uh, Cain would not have had a problem in slaying his brother. You know, uh, the laws were in effect. They just had not been codified and given to Israel as the law of their society. But they were there. On the other hand, that is not an uncodified law 
which justified Abraham. It was his belief and faith in God, being yet uncircumcised, that he would become the heir of the world. Now, can others also share in that inheritance? Yes, they can, and he's explaining that any human being can share in that inheritance. But he is, was going to work through Abraham and Abraham's righteousness so that not only ultimately Israel, but the whole world could be accounted righteousness through their belief in God, and Abraham would then become the heir of the whole world, or all mankind, Jew and Gentile, when the plan of God is complete. Abraham is the father of us all, not just Israelites, not just Jews, but everybody, the heir of the world. But righteousness was established through him as a body. Now, there had been a few righteous people <clears throat> prior to Abraham. Enoch, Noah, a few. But they had not been made a nation or given a set of rules to order their society through. That was given to Israel at Sinai <coughs> in a codified law and all the statutes and so on that went with that covenant. But it was established through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. He says, it's not the law that's going to justify you and get you there. You keep the law, you're not an, you're not an heir of the universe or an heir of the world. The first heir of the world was Abraham, in which covenant covered all Israel and would ultimately cover all mankind. God did not make that kind of covenant with Enoch or Noah. He made it with Abraham. So he says, just having the law does not make you an heir. Having the law helps you do good conduct and helps you not die. But since all have sinned and come short, you're going to die anyway. So you better believe in something that is bigger than the law. The blood of Christ. It is heavier. It is stronger. It is better than the law because it can remove the penalty of the law. So it's greater than the law. Now, does God keep his own law? Yes, he does. But his righteousness is not from the law, even as ours is not. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. There is no need for faith if you just keep the law and you can be saved that way. You don't need faith. Well, so is he trying to do away with the law still? Are we getting that out of it? Wasn't it Paul that said, faith, hope, and love are the greatest three? Therefore, one of the greatest three things that there is, is faith in God. So, he's saying faith is bigger than the law. It's one of the big three. And if it's the law that saves, then you don't need faith. But we do need faith, obviously. What did Christ say? Will I find it when I return? That's what I'm going to be looking for, is faith. Right? That's what I want to find, is faith. Why? It goes all the way back to Abraham. It was Abraham's faith, that is his trust, his belief, in whatever God said would happen. And that was counted for righteousness. Because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. If there's not a law, you're not transgressing. I explained that last week. If there's no speed limit, I can go as fast as I want to. It doesn't make any difference. If there is a law, and I transgress it, then I get a ticky. You know? Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by pardon... To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, 
but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Jews and Gentiles were in the room. He's the father of us all. So how can you pick at each other and say, I'm better than you? No. We all have the same father, Abraham. Same father, God. So one cannot put himself above the other. It's all through unmerited pardon because Jew and Gentile had both sinned. Verse 17, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. So Abraham believed God, right? And in believing God, God said, I'm going to save Abraham. And he spoke of something that has not yet occurred. Abraham is in the grave. He knows nothing. He has not ascended to heaven, even as David has not, according to Acts. He's still in the grave. And he isn't thinking about it. He isn't still wondering if he's going to be in the kingdom of God or not. He's just dead, and the dead know nothing, Ecclesiastes said. But it's as good as done. God said, because Abraham believed me, I'm going to make him eternal. I'm going to resurrect him and give him eternal life. That's what Paul's saying. He speaks of those things that are, which are not as if they already were. There are a lot of people who've died in the faith. We've got some of them right up here in the ground, not very far from here, that I believe are going to be in the kingdom of God because they believed God. They trusted God and they believed in the sacrifice of Christ. And they're going to be resurrected in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be in the first resurrection. Now God's already said that. It hasn't happened yet. But it's a gonna. That's why I said last week, do you really believe it? And that's what this is all about. He calls those things which be not as although they were, who against hope believed in hope. He's going to give us an example now that show that there wasn't any human physical hope for something that God said would happen. No hope at all. But he hoped against hope. I know there's no hope, but God said this, therefore, I'm going to hope anyway. I'm going to believe it. Now God used a pretty powerful example. Who hoped against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken so shall your seed be. And being not weak in faith, he was strong in faith, not weak. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. Abraham was way beyond the point where he could engender a child. Nothing down there happened anymore other than urination. That was the whole of it. That's all. Way beyond that possibility. When you can't, you can't. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was also old. She was way past menopause. She was dried up and wrinkled and old. There's no way that woman physically could conceive and there was no way he could be there to even make it a possibility. So they were both way beyond. I know what it says? No hope. Hoped against hope. What if you were 90, 100 years old and God came and said, I know you've been without children all these 70 years you've been married, but uh, you're going to be the heir of the nations. 
your seed is going to expand. And you say, what seed? <laughs> Neither one of us have produced any of that for a long, long time now. How's this going to happen? Are you going to have a little incredulity there? You're going to have trouble believing that? Might you even laugh? <laughs> That's a funny thought. But yet, that was just a surface attitude. Maybe a little deeper with Sarah, but she got over it pretty quickly. And believed. That he would be the father of many nations when that wasn't a human possibility. Verse 20, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. It says he wasn't weak in faith before this, and now it says he was strong in faith. When God told him, you and Sarah are going to have a baby, he believed it. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't at some point have other thoughts and begin to, in his mind, say, how did God mean that? Sarah, seeing no life in him, and knowing there was no life in her, had this handmaid, Hagar, who was not beyond menopause yet. So she began to reason, well, maybe God didn't mean me. Maybe he meant Abraham would have children through me as the proxy, or, or through Hagar as the proxy of me. So she invited Abraham to go sleep with Hagar. And that generally does not work out too well and didn't in this case either. We've got lots of Ishmaelites running around who hate Israelites to this day. But they began to reason a little bit. Now, she thought maybe I'm the problem. But she was kind of forgetting that Abraham was also dead that way. So how is he going to engender children through, Ab through Hagar any more than Sarah? Even though Hagar might be possible, it still wasn't with him. At least not at that point. But he staggered not, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, he was not depending on himself at that point. He knew he could do nothing. So he believed God could do something. And that's something we need to come to, to truly come to grips with. As Christ said, of myself, I can do nothing. It's all through the Father that I can do something. So he was the Son of God on earth, and yet, on a spiritual level, he could do nothing. Could he have breakfast? Yeah, but he's talking about something more than that, something important. Yeah, we can go through the physical life as long as we're physical, but we can't accomplish anything that is eternal or important without God. Now, he had been promised something, and he didn't stagger. He believed it. And believed that God could perform it. Didn't know how, but he believed it anyway. Now, I look at some of those things that God has told us in the prophecies are going to happen here in the end time. And as we've gone through them over and over and over again, they are clearly for the end time. The time of the latter temple, the two witnesses, and those who come to build the temple... At the end. There's no denying it. But do we believe it? There are some who came here, having heard that message, and said they believed it, and they believed it enough to get here. They did not believe it enough to stay here, when it didn't happen as fast as they wanted it to. Or, they're still here, and still don't believe it because they think I'm a problem. Now, am I going to stop God doing what He said in those Scriptures? Not a chance. If God can't deal with me, He can get rid of me in one heartbeat. That's all it takes. Or some of these things that have happened that could have killed me so very easily over the last 20 years and before. 
And despite a heart fibrillation and getting old and whatever other problems I may have I don't even know about, I could also die very easily. But if God could cause me to die with one heartbeat, He could also cause me to live with one. It's all His business. My life and yours. So people who rebel against what God sent me here to do are actually in rebellion against God, not believing that He can work through a sinner like Daryl Henson. They just don't believe that because of all the things they think I've done. You know, I could tell them a whole lot of things I've done they don't even know about. I really could. I might have thought something yesterday I shouldn't have thought. I don't remember, but I probably did. I sin every day. In some form of commission or omission or thought or attitude. Can't help myself. I just do. And most every night I pray and every morning, God forgive me for those things that I did do or I didn't even know I did. And you're the same way. But are we going to let our faith in God be destroyed because of physical circumstances or because we don't trust some human being who's trying to serve God but fails? You know, Moses just really wasn't doing things right. And Miriam and Aaron weren't against Moses necessarily. But they said, he married this Ethiopian woman. That's against the law. You know what? It probably was against the law. I don't know all the circumstances. I've, I've known people who have gone back to those scriptures and they've tried to explain that they, even though this woman was from Ethiopia, she was an Israelite living in Ethiopia and therefore... Moses wouldn't have done anything wrong and marrying that woman wasn't wrong. Now you can go a long ways around Jones's barn to try to explain that your favorite hero of the Old Testament never sinned. But they all did. Every last one of them sinned. Moses sinned just by striking the rock, right? That's one we know about. He let his temper get away with him, his ego a little bit. And he suffered for it, and so did the rest of Israel. So Moses sinned. So why go all this around to explain that this woman was actually an Israelite? No, I think Miriam and Aaron were probably correct. He married somebody he should not have married. Was it their responsibility to fix Moses? No, God had appointed Moses. Moses was God's responsibility, not theirs. Now, whose side did God take to prove the point? I think the leprosy kind of told the tale. But he's my responsibility. If he sinned, he answers to me. He does not answer to you. Now, I told somebody just recently... I'm not going to ask if you sinned. I heard you might have. But I'm not going to ask. That's between you and God. And if you did, take care of it. I don't even need to know about it. I've done that on many occasions with people over the years. Because I don't need to know their sins. I don't. Maybe we should make a confessional booth back here and everybody could come in and tell me all their sins. No? We don't need that. You confess them to God and forsake them. Now, if you need to tell your sin for some reason, you need some help with it or something, a weakness, whatever, yeah, we can employ help and counsel and guidance. But that may even be given sometimes without the counselor knowing what the specific sin is. Sometimes it may need to be known, or sometimes it's obvious and in front of everybody. Moses apparently was obvious and in front of everybody because 250 of the princes of Israel wound up rebelling like Moses, I mean like Ephraim and Ephraim, Miriam and Aaron did. But God made it very clear that he would back 
Moses whom he had appointed. Now I defy you to find one example anywhere in the Bible where God took the side of those who accused those he had appointed. You can't find one. It's not in there. Now did all those people God had appointed sin? Every one of them did. But God, in every case, backed the one he had appointed, and those who rebelled against his authority that he had placed there suffered for it. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament for a quick example. From where we were here, how did I get there? He staggered not at the promise of God through... Uh, unbelief, but was strong in faith, being fully persuaded. Oh, I know how it was. It, uh, they begin to reason a little bit. Well, maybe it's Hagar. Uh, they had the idea, we're going to have seed. And Abraham's seed will inherit the earth. They got it. They believed it. Then, you, th- you know, human reasoning can come. And... Hagar as a handmaid wasn't the best answer. That answer was given with others as well, uh, where Rebecca was barren and so on. So she gave handmaids. That wasn't the best solution. God could have fixed it. God promised it. He's able to perform it. Verse 22, Therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness, not his works. He couldn't had no possibility of engendering a child. He, he could not do what was necessary to accomplish it. So it wasn't his works. <laughs> it was his belief in God that counted for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So he's telling everybody in no uncertain terms here that it isn't works that do it, even of Abraham and Sarah, because they couldn't perform the work anymore. But they believed God, and that was counted as righteousness. And the only way that you can be accounted to be righteousness is through the blood of Emmanuel the Christ. He whom the Jews to this day have still not accepted, despite what Christ told them then, despite what Paul said, despite everything in Scripture, Old and New Testament, they will not accept he who was named in the Old Testament to come. Yes, they had a great advantage. An Old Testament which predicted Christ coming to the earth and living and dying and being resurrected. And when he came, they would not receive him and still have not. A few Messianics have, but they have not accepted what he said. They still follow Protestant doctrine. So they're still worshipers of Satan, even though they accept the name of Jesus. Nothing has changed. But he, he makes this whole dissertation here, and there in the last verses, he brings it all down and says, it isn't works, it's belief in Christ and the Father. Not Abraham, not Moses, not circumcision, not helping a lady across the street, do you believe God? Do you believe the promises He's made? He promised them physical children. And He's promised us eternal life. Do we believe Him with all our hearts? Do we believe Him with strong faith, being fully persuaded that what He has promised He will be able also to perform? And as I said last week, as proof, do you believe your past sins are forgiven? Those from 50, 60, 30, 20, 10, yesterday are forgiven. 
and that you might be one to whom God does not impute sin because he has given you unmerited pardon because of your overall direction in life and what you're trying to do and that he's not holding the penalty of the law over you anymore because the blood of Christ covered those sins? Do you believe it for you? Do you believe it for your brethren? Do you believe it for each and every one sitting here? Or do you try to impute sin to your brothers and sisters and neighbors when God has forgiven it? In which case you're going diametrically opposite of what God is doing. I believe God did not impute sin to Moses. I believe that because of the service and the belief that Moses had in God instilled at the burning bush and further enhanced by the miracles he showed bringing them out of Mitzrayim and Sinai and many other things that God did that Moses very, very much believed in God and everything that God said. And if he made a mistake with that Ethiopian woman, his relationship was God with God was such that God was going to forgive him of it, whether his brother and sister believed it or not. And when they tried to impute sin to Moses, that God was forgiving, they got in trouble. We had better be very, very careful imputing sin to anyone. Judge not that you be not judged. Because you're on very, very thin ice and may be found to be absolutely opposite of what God is doing. And when you will not forgive and leave your sins in the past and keep bringing them up and letting them interfere with your belief and faith in God, then you are interfering with your own salvation. Do you actually believe your sins were forgiven? If you do, why do you keep bringing them up? In your own mind or before God either? Now, you need to still be aware of them and have learned from them that you don't repeat the same sins, but you don't need to agonize over it and keep repenting for something you did 30 years ago or 10 minutes ago. You take it and claim the blood of Christ and ask for forgiveness And He is faithful to forgive. We confess and forsake to Him. And He forgives. Confessing to the Father in the confession booth as a Catholic doesn't do you a bit of good. Because that Father can't absolve your sin. Only the blood of Christ can. And will. Now we'd better get busy believing that and quit wallowing in the past of our own sins or other people's sins and move forward in the grace of God to the salvation of our souls through Christ Emmanuel who came and died and was resurrected by the Father and He who has promised He will do the same with us. Believe it.